It's college admission season, and while thousands of high school seniors anxiously await their acceptance letters, there are a surprising number of very high-achieving students, especially in low-income communities, who never even applied. This, despite the fact that many of them would qualify for financial aid packages that make attending college very possible. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're speaking with Christopher Avery, the Roy E. Larson Professor of Public Policy here at the Kennedy School, who's been studying the college admission system. Professor Avery, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you describe these high-achieving, low-income students as the missing one-offs. Can you describe the background on that? Sure. I think that we've inherited the title, the phrase one-off, from uh, some college admissions uh, office lingo. Although I, I can't, uh, I, I don't know the sp- precise source of the, of that, and that's that's just a guess. Um, but um, one off in this context means, from the perspective of selective college admissions office, a single student in a school where you ordinarily would not have a lot of competitive applicants for admission. So they're one off, and missing is the sense that these students often don't apply to selective colleges. They may apply to much less selective colleges, but they don't apply to the selective colleges like. Harvard and Stanford and other Ivy League colleges, for example, which traditionally are, are now going to provide very generous financial aid as a systematic pro- practice uh, to students who come from families with relatively low incomes. But if the families don't recognize that that's the case, they may look at the what the sticker price, the price that's listed as the tuition and room and board on a website, and say, there's no way we can afford that, so you shouldn't even apply. So these students are qualified, ostensibly, to be in these institutions. Yeah, we we looked at essentially the the top um, few percent of students um, on the on the SAT uh, and the ACT, and we were tracking their college applications. Mm-hmm. And what exactly was keeping them from applying? Was it just sticker cost? We, yeah, we don't um, you know we don't know in great detail. Uh, my co-authors um, who are doing some experiments with providing information to these students are testing and, and finding some strong evidence for the fact it's simply that they don't they don't know um, about the availability of the financial aid, and they also don't know that they could qualify for admission fee waivers. Uh, which may, can certainly make a big difference in their in their decisions. So, what was your research exactly? I mean, what what did it look like? The actual study. Well, the actual study that that I was involved with, with with Caroline Hoxby as the as the co-author and the lead author on the study, um, was tracking um, students over some period of time um, through their SAT scores, our estimates of their family income based on the information that they provided, where the, and where they live, and what schools they attend. Um, our assessments of where they sent uh, applications based on where they um, the where they sent their test scores, and then some matched records about where they actually ended up enrolling in college. So um, you've subsequently released another report um, that essentially tries to uh, detail efforts to fix this problem, um, and uh, it it seems to have worked in some regard. So interestingly, um, in a separate study of an organization called College Possible that in fact was founded by some Kennedy School graduates uh, more than a decade ago, um, I worked with them to create uh, a randomized controlled trial where they typically would have about 900 students for, for 800 spots in their program every year. This is a program that operated uh, operates in St. Paul and Minneapolis and now is expanding to some other places. Um, and uh, they, they would receive 900 qualified applications for about for 800 positions in their program. For These are from 10th graders in mm-hmm. um, low-income families in public schools in St. Paul and Minneapolis. 
and uh, we we worked together, and they agreed that they would um, select the last hundred of their um, eight hundred uh, at random mm -hmm. from the last set of qualified applicants. So that made for a hundred plus who got selected at random for the program, and a hundred plus who looked similar who got selected at random and were not in included in those last spots in the program. And then we just tracked the outcomes of those students to see. Uh, with treatment and control groups, straightforward comparison of what would be, what was our assessment of the effect of, of their program, and and there were some nice positive results. So, what was the program, and what did it involve? They, um, you know, they have a detailed two-year program, and uh, they try to cover all aspects of of the college applications process. They are also trying in detail to prepare students um, to make to be self make good decisions and to be self-sufficient once they arrive in college. So they won't just get there, but they'll also thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they are especially trying to direct students, these students, to four-year colleges as opposed to, to two-year colleges because there's really a strong, much stronger record of success uh, for these low-income students uh, in four-year colleges. And this is a sort of a, this isn't quite the same population that Caroline Hoxby and I studied. Um, these are students who are not uh, uh, necessarily as high achieving in terms of the test scores, but they have very good grades and and they have. The, clearly have the ability to succeed in a four-year college. So, mm -hmm. so the goal of College Possible is not necessarily to get more students to Harvard and the like uh, to college, but to get more of these students uh, to four-year colleges and to get then help, help, um, help them proceed through the four-year college to getting a four-year college degree and then go into the workforce with that credential and those skills. Are the challenges similar between the two kind of populations? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that the, cha the challenge that's similar is um, helping the students to apply to appropriate colleges. Mm -hmm. um, the challenges are quite different in the sense that um, students who are going to, who've already really excelled on the, on the SATs uh, are probably going to do at least reasonably well under some circumstances. Um, whereas um, the, the students, uh, even so, however, there's, there, there is some danger that some, if they enroll at a, a college that doesn't give them very much financial aid or very much academic support, even the best student may, may not thrive and may not complete a four-year degree. Mm -hmm. um, with the students that College Possible is working with, it's the same kind of challenge, um, but the students are not quite as outstanding academically. They're not at the, at the, at the absolute top. Mm -hmm. um, because you know you're not going to find 800 or 900 students in in the Minneapolis public schools who are going to be in the top uh, top 10 percent of SAT takers or you know top right. four percent of students overall. Yeah. So, um, but uh, but the challenges are at least broadly similar. So, are there any specific things that have come into play in terms of uh, making a difference for these for these students? I mean, is it college preparation? I mean, or like prep classes? Is that the kind of thing that helps them get through? You know, I, I think that they would they would the college possible folks would probably say that they they feel like the that the every all the aspects of their program are are, are important mm -hmm. uh, from uh, figuring out how to prepare for class, how to manage your time, um, to figuring out where to apply, but also they, they spend a lot of time on, on ACT preparation work. Mm -hmm. And we had an interesting finding in the result, which was that um, they found that the students um, in their program will increase several points over the course of the program from pretest to post-test on the ACT. Mm -hmm. We found that was true also in the in the um, study where we tracked um, the students in the treatment and control groups. But on the other hand, we didn't end up concluding, since we're comparing one set of students in the program to another set of students out of the program, it turned out that the students who were not in the program also made that similar progress on the ACT. So those students um, possibly were learning 
um, some of the skills in class uh, in their, at school to succeed, since the ACT is a content-based test with you know, each test tied to an academic subject. It's also possible that those other students were finding other sources of help mm-hmm. and uh, other prep classes. So what that tells us is that you know, when you compa- it's a commentary on the, this type of approach. When you're comparing these students who are applying to get to the admission possible, uh, college possible, they used to be admission possible, you're applying to comp- uh, trying to compare these students who get in as opposed to students who are randomly selected um, to be out, although they had applied. Um, it's a tougher comparison because the students who in the in the comparison group may be seeking out other sources of help, mm-hmm. and so one of the possibilities is that you can find this is actually a program that's really good, but that. Um, its comparison is to, is to other programs that are, are probably really good as opposed to someone sitting at home and not getting any help at all. So does that mean that actually maybe one of the more important things is just a public information or awareness program? I mean, it seems like these students who applied and didn't get in, I mean, they at least had some the, impetus to do better. Well, the primary effect we end up seeing in the college possible study, the positive effect for the, of the students who were, uh, all these students who applied, some of them were accepted into their program, some of them were excluded and maybe found other programs. The positive effect we found from comparing those two groups really was about their applications. Mm-hmm. Um, the, all, the students um, in, their, in their program applied to more four-year colleges. They applied to more appropriate four-year colleges. And, and in fact, they were more likely to apply and gain admission to a four-year college in general. Mm-hmm. And then that seemed to translate into enrollment where we saw a statistically significant increase, even though we have a pretty small gr- sample, you know, about 120 in each group. And mm-hmm. we, uh, it was a, about a 15 percentage point increase in the number of students who ended up enrolling in college, in a four-year college, uh, the fall semester right after they had graduated from high school. So that's really a pretty big difference. So you said uh, in in the report that the uh, the admission rate was actually fairly flat, but that wasn't indicative of the success of the program. In, in a, I've done a number of, uh, of studies along these lines, and it's not always the case that you're able to track um, actual both application and admission. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, typically, it's the application stage that makes the big difference. Mm-hmm. That if you can get more students to apply, um, they probably will be admitted at similar rates mm-hmm. uh, as uh, uh, as before, and they'll probably enroll at similar rates to any comparison group. So just getting more students to apply to appropriate places typically pays off and sort of tracks through every step of the system. Mm-hmm. Years ago, Caroline Hoxby and I studied the first year of the Harvard Financial Aid Initiative, where that was the first time that Harvard systematically told students that if their families was, were below a particular level of income, I believe it was fifty thousand dollars at that time, that um, there would be they would have uh, Harvard would would in one way or another cover all of the costs of attendance, mm-hmm. and um, the next year there was an increase in in application, and then again exactly as I said, not very much difference in a, a, admission rates for the the students who qualified for that program, not very much difference in enrollment rates for the students who qualified for that program. Mm -hmm. But because they had gotten more students to apply, that tracked into having more students, uh, more low-income students in the the class. It's kind of a similar thing happening with College Possible. They're getting more students to apply to appropriate four-year colleges. That tracks all the way into getting more students to actually enroll in four-year colleges. So it seems like, uh, at least for the the group of high-achieving students, um, colleges would love to have them um, you know the Harvard Stanford these these colleges would love to have them in their classrooms um, are they taking a, any efforts to try and reach out to these people I mean I, I imagine it's difficult because they're not applying in the first place you know all these colleges are making are making huge efforts and the tr- 
going back to the title, the missing one-offs, that kind of points out the challenge for admissions offices. Admissions offices traditionally operated on models of travel to meet students where they are. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about a one-off student in a rural area, uh, that's going to be very hard for the admissions office and not very cost-effective for the admissions office to try to actually meet that student in person. Right. I mean, I think Harvard, the different versions of Harvard's um, alumni chapters are, are actually making serious efforts to, to try to do this on their own, potentially in collaboration with the admissions office. I think lots of other colleges are trying to activate their alumni in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that's a big challenge. I instead, there's, there's actually m many new um, sort of 21st century efforts now under, underway uh, involving social media. Mm -hmm. And I know that Harvard, the Harvard, Harvard has a very active campaign that they're just starting this year. So uh, that'll, that remains to be seen as to whether these virtual mentoring, virtual communication methods uh, actually actually play um, play out in the in the way that we might hope that they do. So when the students actually get into these institutions and they enroll, is there any information about how they actually do? Do they end up graduating? You know, um, this is a huge issue and a hu it's a historically uh, big question. Um, uh, Jerry Carabell, who's a Berkeley sociologist, has written about the history of college admissions at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton in, in, a, in a really wonderful book. And he, he thought about this in some great, great detail, and he points out that you know, all these things, themes are historical themes that have occurred before. Uh, and in, in the 1960s, associated with the Civil Rights Movement, many colleges made you know, dramatic attempts to open up uh, admissions to students who type, uh, from groups who, that had never attended before. And it wasn't always successful because the cultural challenge um, was huge mm -hmm. uh, for students who um, had never really been in, in, in a school like uh, any, any school that was comparable, or even remotely, to, to Harvard. It was a big challenge to come, not just in the classroom, but also culturally. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these um, colleges now are making big efforts, not only on the admissions front, but also on... Uh, the social networking front and um, the training front uh, uh, to try to help students from these backgrounds when they, they come here. Harvard has a very, very active undergraduate group that's supported by the admissions office and some of the folks, in, I believe, in the freshman dean's office and, the, and University Hall um, that is a student-run group. I've participated in a couple of their activities, but it's a student-run student group uh, that's really just uh, designed to be a support network where it's students who qualify for the Harvard Financial Aid Initiative, um, getting together in a systematic way, bringing in speakers, um, trying to address each other, help each other with their, with different kinds of problems. Um, the results are, I think, that the the students from these low income backgrounds do pretty well uh, when they get when they get to colleges like Harvard, uh, but it's it's a sensitive issue, and it's it's a it's a, it's a sensitive issue because. If they're not provided with systematic means of support when they get here, they probably won't succeed. Mm -hmm. And they're not because they're simply not, they haven't had the opportunity to become accustomed to um, the peer networks and the types of um, challenges that they're asked to face, both academically and socially, at a place, at a place like Harvard. Is that something that an organization like College Possible could address and start to... You know, I, I, a lot of uh, you know a lot of the programming in College Possible, a lot of the programming in Harvard, Harvard Harvard's Crimson Summer Academy, which is a three summer program for uh, 
low-income students in Boston and Cambridge in mm -hmm. high school, a lot of their programming is, is designed towards this exactly the question of, you know, what, how are you going to survive the cultural transition from being in, let's say, a majority-minority high school mm -hmm. to uh, a college in which if you're a minority student, uh, you really are a minority in terms of the numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor Christopher Avery, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Mm -hmm.